Good afternoon. If you would, take your Bible out and open it up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be reading from this afternoon. I am uh, excited to have started a study recently. Uh, as I, on, on Monday mornings, I, I meet with Kyle Roop and a couple other gentlemen. Um, and we've, we've been going through... Uh, various books of the Bible, the book of Hebrews. We spent some time in the Minor Prophets. And it was re- uh, requested of us by one of the members of that group that we go through the Pauline epistles, that is the letters that Paul has written. And, and so we began with what some consider to be the first epistle that Paul wrote. It's tossed up between this and Galatians. Many, uh, some say Galatians was the first. The other one's uh, the letter to the Thessalonians. By the way, we begin here... And I've been very excited to, to, to read through this. We spent last Monday going through the first chapter, and I made the note to Kyle. I said, the first three verses of that chapter, you could speak volumes of sermons off of. And so, after having thought about that for a while, I, I concluded that maybe that would be a good place for us to start our study this afternoon, looking at this letter to the Thessalonians. Um, I want to go ahead and read the first three verses and just speak a little bit about some of the things that they say. It begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. In the opening letter, the, oh, the, the first thing that, that Paul has to say to this group of believers is to express his thanksgiving for them. And it's interesting to me, as you read through the book, you begin to find that he is thankful for them despite errors in their life. Now, we noted as we read through it that there's not a whole lot that he has to say bad about them. I mean, it's not like the, the book of Corinthians. You open that first letter, Corinthians, and it is problem after problem after problem that he, that he lays out in front of them. Thessalonians, uh, the first letter to Thessalonians is not like that. But we do see that he's not thankful to them because their doctrine is just impeccable. They've got everything figured out. And he's not thankful for them because they're righteous and pure. In fact, later he's going to have to tell them in chapter 4, you guys, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. He's talking about those who have died before them. He has to tell them that probably because they were ignorant about people who had died before them. He tells them later, I want you to abstain from sexual impurities. Again, likely because they hadn't been abstaining from sexual impurities. And so he's going to instruct them on these things. And today, if we were to look at a church like that, A church that just doesn't have it figured out about life after death. A church that has got all these erroneous doctrines that are floating around and people involved in in sexual immorality. We look at that church and we say, that is a lost church. There's something going on with that church. they got problems. But notice that's not where Paul starts. Paul starts with thanksgiving. Now don't get me wrong, they had to correct these problems. He's, making, he's bringing them up because he wants them to correct them. He doesn't want them to stay on that course. Jesus does the same thing when he writes letters uh, to, the, to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation. And he says, here's problems that you're dealing with. And when you deal with those problems, you need to know you're fighting with me. And you're not going to win that battle. 
If you keep fighting with me, I'm going to come and I'm going to keep your, take your lampstand away, take your light away. And so he, he, he recognizes as well there's churches that are dealing with problems and they need to do something with that. Paul doesn't excuse the problems that they have here. But what he does do is he shows an attitude of thanks. The problems that existed in Thessalonica are easier to fix thanks by and large to the focus that they have. They had eyes that were focused on an eternity with God. And that's what I want to consider this afternoon. That focus is evident in them through the description that Paul provides in verse 3. And he, mo- he notes three things, three descriptions that he provides when he remembers them in prayer. And so while we look at these three things, I want you to have this question in the back of your mind. If Paul knew me, if Paul could write a letter about me, would he write that he had remembered and given thanks for me before our great Father in heaven? So let's just take a look at this picture of focused people that Paul provides in the first three uh, verses of 1 Thessalonians. The first one is this idea of this work of faith. Notice there he says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith in verse 3. I would like to rephrase some of these a little bit. Some of the things that Paul said, I'd like to just kind of flip the words around some. I don't believe that we're changing the meaning of them. I think you'll understand why when I say that. He is praising them. Because the faith that the Thessalonians had had produced work in their lives. Now, oftentimes you've heard arguments made, maybe, maybe, maybe even made these arguments yourself at some point in your life, said, I'm not saved by works. We've got to remember that. I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by faith. But what Paul is saying here is faith produces works. Faith and works go hand in hand together. It's kind of like saying, I didn't get wet by jumping in the pool. I got wet by touching the water that was in the pool. And the picture that I want you to see is just like someone who is sitting in a pool is surrounded by water. Someone who, is, who has a, a faith, a strong act of faith, they're going to be surrounded by works. Now, all too often today, we hear people say, well, you know, I, I believe that I'm saved because I believe in God. I know who He is. He's got my back. I'm good. I'm safe. I don't have to worry about anything. And you also hear people say this today as well. I'm good. I'm safe. He's got my back because I've been baptized. I've gotten wet. And that makes me safe. And what I want us to see from this first part of the description that Paul gives is all too often our focus on being saved is focused on some point, some action of our life, and everything from then on just kind of gets tossed to the side. Don't have to worry about it from then on. I was buried with Christ. I believed in God. I believe that I'm saved. Had my sins washed away. He has my back. I'm good. But what Paul is telling us here is faith. An unwavering belief and an unwavering trust prompts us towards submission, not only from turning from our old life, not only to to join Christ in His death through baptism, but to also walk a new life in His power that is filled with work. Or another way we might describe that is it's filled with good fruits. We're busy bearing fruits because of the faith that we have. That's a saving faith. A faith that prompts us not only to believe, but to move and to be active 
within the power of Christ. And what that means then is faith is not invisible. Sometimes we hear people talk about faith like it's this, this quality of the heart, this, this thing that we have that you can't see and you can't judge my faith. And I'm not trying to say that we should be faith judgers, but we can judge a tree by its fruit. We can look at an apple tree and see that it's full of rotted fruit. It's not growing any fruit. It's dying. Or we can look at an apple tree and say that thing is abundantly growing fruit. There's, there's tree, apples falling off of it left and right and the branches are sagging with so much fruit. We can see that and Jesus tells us the same thing. Faith has evidences in our life. It can be seen. It can be demonstrated whether our faith is alive and fueling us or whether our faith is dead and rotting away at us. Not too long ago at a Saturday study, uh, we're looking at the book of Mark, and one of the guys that's visiting that, great guy, and I really hope that you all get to meet him sometime, his name is Hunter, and he had a great question. He said that Paul talks about justification by, by faith alone. In Romans, in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 1, Paul is talking about being justified by faith. But James, in James chapter 2, and verses 14 through 21, over and over again, is saying that faith without works is dead. So how do I, how do I do it? What do I do with that? That seems like a contradiction. you got the Apostle Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, and they're just button heads and they're fighting. What am I supposed to do with all that? Well, what I want us to know is, number one, they don't contradict each other. But especially here, in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he is so much in tune with what James is saying. They're on the same page. His understanding of faith is so much more in line with James when he's saying a living, healthy, active faith produces work in your life. And so, what we sometimes do is we say, okay, but I'm not working. I'm not doing much. I guess that means I better get to work. I, best I, I better start doing things to show people my faith. That's not what Paul said, though, was it? We need to be very, very careful the way we think about these topics. Because sometimes we get the order backwards. We can't do that. I work, therefore I have faith. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have faith, therefore I work. And that sounds very similar, but they're not. If you're busy working, <coughs> excuse me, if you're not busy working, it's not that you just need to get up and get moving. Sometimes I think that's the mind that we have. We see somebody, they're not busy working, we just, like, just get up and go. If that person would just get up and go, they'd be a great Christian. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying we need to get closer to God if we're not busy working. Faith grows knowledge of what God has done. Grows, it, it, it grows understanding of what God desires. And it grows a desire to join Him in His work as well. I want you to think back to the Pharisees for a minute. This was a busy bunch of people. I don't know, sometimes we, we think about the Pharisees and we just completely paint them wrong. Like they were just absolutely no good, doing nothing, sitting around, pointing fingers at everybody else. No! The Pharisees were busy. They were busy working. They had many works they were involved in and Jesus doesn't condemn them. He doesn't condemn them and get upset just because they prayed in public. Just because they said a prayer out and everybody heard them, he didn't say, well, that right there is what makes you wrong. And just because they said prayers that were long, he said, well, that right there is what makes you wrong. And even think about this. They tithed mint and dill and cumin. They were busy giving lots of things 
to the treasury of the Lord. And he doesn't say that's what makes you wrong. They were full of works. What made them wrong was they were works of faithlessness. It wasn't about God. It wasn't about what they gave to Him. It wasn't about speaking to Him. It was about the attention that they got. And so it's very easy to twist this around backwards and see the amount of work equals my faith. They did a lot of work, but it was work that was not motivated by faith. And so it's not just about getting busy. It's about getting busy in God. It's about knowing God, knowing who He is, growing in your faith and allowing that faith to motivate you to work in the kingdom and not just work for the sake of working. That brings us to the next thing he says. He's not only thankful for their work of faith, he says, I'm also thankful for your labor of love. Now it seems it sounds very similar, doesn't it? Work, labor, that's the very same thing. Well, he uses a different word here. There's a different Greek word that he chooses to use to describe labor. The word is kapas, and it's more than just labor. It's backbreaking labor. It's sweat-inducing labor. It's tear and heart-wrenching labor. It is labor mixed or mingled with troubles and trials. And he says the love of the Thessalonians had produced that sort of labor in their lives. Again, I'm flipping that a little bit. Their labor of love, we're saying it a little bit different way, but we're not changing the meaning any. The love that they had had produced this sort of labor. And that's not hard to imagine when you think about the history of Thessalonica. If you'll remember back over in Acts chapter 17, that's where Paul first is introduced to these Christians as he comes on his second missionary journey into Thessalonica. And uh, as he gets in there, he does not spend a remarkably long amount of time. He spends three weeks there. Three Sabbaths that he works with them and he's presenting this message that Jesus Christ is the Christ. This Jesus of Nazareth has come. He's the Son of God and they need to listen to Him. It says there in verse 3, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And it says in verse 4, some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Some of the people are believing but others are not. And the group that is not, within a period of three weeks, runs Paul out of town. And not just runs him out of town. It's not, it's not like a couple of them show up and say, listen, we're tired of what you're saying. You need to go. This angry mob starts swelling so much so that the believers are saying, you got to get out of here. And when they can't find Paul, they go and they find Jason and his household. And they drag him before the assembly, the rulers of the city. And they're ready to do terrible things. They're ready to rip these people apart. That's the sort of mentality that is found in Thessalonica over these Jews, or excuse me, over these Christians. And that's the group that he's writing back to, that he writes to now. And you might be guilty of thinking, just like I was guilty of thinking, what chance does a group that's three weeks old, they had three weeks of teaching, what chance do they have to standing up to that sort of adversity? There are people I know have been Christians their whole life, and if an angry mob shows up at their house, I would hope that they would have the fortitude to say that they had labor of love, but I would also wouldn't be surprised to see them crack. I wouldn't be surprised to see me have really hard time dealing with a great multitude outside of my house ready to tear my house down and tear my family apart because of Jesus Christ. I hope that we don't have to deal with that, but that's the reality for them. That's what they're dealing with. 
And Paul writes back to them and he says, wow, you guys are working and you're not only just working, you are laboring with toil and sweat and tears and it's because of your love. And I think, why? Well, there's two reasons that I want to give. One, and I'm going to do them in reverse order. One is Paul didn't just leave. We need to know that. Silas and Timothy stuck around. He sends them back and they stay there and they work and they actually stay there for a while until he gets to Corinth. And you can read about it in the Corinthian letter. They show up. They come back and they start telling Paul, here's what's happening in Thessalonica. And what they're doing is they're bringing news of a church that's growing in strength. But more importantly, they're growing in the love of God. And that love of God during this intense turmoil is producing laboring. Now you think of laboring, I don't know what you think of, but I think of a a farmer in a field that has this great crop that, that he knows is going to come. There's going to be a, a fruitful harvest, but there is work that has to be done. And it's hard work, and the sun's beating down on you, and you don't want to do it. And sometimes it hurts, and sometimes it's painful, but you push through. That's what we see going on here. Coppus. Labor. Now, Paul would write uh, again to the Corinthians. He writes to them, and he's going to elevate this position of love to higher than faith and higher than hope. I want you to remember what he says in chapter 13. He says, even if I speak in tongues, even if I have a great faith, if my faith can move mountains, it's all fine and good, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. So again, once more, let's not get these backwards. It's not, I will labor, therefore I must have love in my life. I have labored in my life for many things that weren't love. I've labored in my life. I've done hard things, not because of love, but because I needed money. Because I I needed attention. I wanted somebody to see what I was doing because I wanted affection. I don't know very many guys that are dating girls that don't labor in really hard things to try to get their attention and say, look at me and pay attention to me. There's lots of labor that goes on. It has nothing to do with love. So labor does not equal love. But love does equal labor. We need to see that. On Wednesday evening, we began a study of the Bible from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation. And what we are doing in that, in that view is we're not digging in really, really deep and looking at every minute detail. We're trying to look at it from a 30,000-foot view so we don't miss the forest because of the trees. So we see that there's there's threads that are interwoven starting in Genesis that are connecting all the way to Revelation. There's themes that are flowing through the Bible. And one of those overarching themes is the love of God. And I want you to think about that love. It produced labor. Intensive, heart-filling labor. I want you to think of how that's seen. It prompts God to be faithful. His love prompts Him to be faithful to a covenant that He made with mankind. It prompts him to raise up a people who are not a people into this great and mighty nation to overlook and forgive the sins and the iniquities of men and turn them into great kings and diligent prophets. And greatest of all, it prompted him to love mankind enough to send his son, his perfect son, his only son, to be sacrificed for enemies. That's where Romans 5 continues. To be sacrificed for His enemies so that they could become His children. I hope you see the point that I'm driving at. Love does something in our lives. If we're not busy laboring, again, it's not, well, I better get to work. So I better start thinking about love. 
Because love is the key to unlocking labor. When we have love, we don't need to be told, love your brethren. When we have love, we don't need to be told, care for your sister. When we have love, we don't need to be told, go evangelize to the lost. Give to the needy. Support the church. In fact, that's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 9 and 10, he says, I don't need to write to you about brotherly love. Why? Because you have love. And it's flowing out of you. So what does he write to them? Instead of saying, here's everything you need to know about brotherly love, he just says, no, excel still more. There's always room to grow. Just keep doing what you're doing and get better. Because love produces that in our life. And if we don't have that now, instead of saying, I better find things to do, we need to start saying, I need to understand love better. And finally, that brings us to steadfastness of hope. Or maybe as, you're, as the New King James says, the patience of hope in our Lord. The hope of the Thessalonians had produced patience. It had produced steadfastness, endurance in their lives. And so once more, I'll call your, your mind back to the events of Acts chapter 17. This angry mob running out the uh, people, Paul from the city, um, <clears throat> causing uh, persecution and, and trouble for the, the Christians that stayed there. Why did they get so angry? You ever thought about that? I mean, here's one guy shows up, and yes, some people are listening to him, but, but what does that really do? It has been proven that Christians generally make lives better where they are. Things, uh, they're not there to, to try and throw a coup and, and oust a, 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 a leader they're not there to make people's lives worse. Generally, what we see is people that are commanded to love their neighbor and to serve mankind. So why did they get so mad? Well, understanding that involves understanding a little bit of history of the city of Thessalonica. And it's a very interesting history that I believe will lend some insight. Thessalonica was and it still is a very prominent city. Today, it's still there. It's known as the city of Thessaloniki. And it's the second largest Grecian city, at least it was about, about 10 years ago, um, in, in Greece. It was prominent then because it was on a major trade route. You had this major route that ran through it, and so it's a huge port for commercial power. It's a huge hub of military and political power. Armies were staged there for battles. And that also led to a lot of, a lot of worship of different... Uh, Greek and Roman gods and idol worship was a great problem there and it was a booming business there but also a very significant thing that made Thessalonica different from a lot of cities was it was a free city yes it belonged to Rome it was under the Roman Empire but it wasn't under the government of Rome that's why when that angry mob comes and they can't find Paul they grab Jason and his family and they take him to the rulers of the city because Thessalonica had its own government. It was a Grecian government. And it was ruled by that assembly. But that was a status that they had only just received maybe 10 years before this. So somewhere around the early to mid 40th, uh, 40 CE, that we, we see this, this uh, city that has been under Roman control finally earning independence. You all can make your own decisions. You know, that's huge for them. They don't have to do things the way all the other cities around them do. They can run things the way they want to. And it's going to help that city to grow and to prosper. And Rome knows that. And so they're staying out of the way. But if somebody comes and is preaching about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, 
who was an enemy of the state. Just 20 years prior to this, Rome executed him on the cross. And now they're not only coming, they're preaching and talking about him, but they're talking about he's the Christ, which in their eyes and their minds, they understand what they say. He's the king. Completely understand. Completely understand why that scared them. In fact, that's the story that they rule up. They're saying this guy is preaching, this guy's preaching about this Jesus of Nazareth, and he's teaching against Caesar, against him. He's going to defeat Caesar. He's going to be the true king. This filled the Thessalonians with fear. We're going to lose our freedom. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our wealth. We're going to lose everything if we let this go on. And you think about that being the cultural backdrop of this Thessalonian letter. (coughs) A faithful, loving people filled with hope in a politically charged society that had returned from the brink and is fearful of being pushed back over again. These people hated the Christians. They hated them because they threatened everything about their way of life and their freedom. And so Paul writes to them and says, I'm thankful for your patience in hope. And again, let's let's flip that a little bit. I'm thankful for your hope, which has produced great patience in your life. When troubles and temptations come our way, and they do, and oftentimes we, we stumble, we slip, we give in to a temptation, we, we take our eyes off the prize, and we, we give in to the things of this day that are calling our attention away from God, the answer to that is not this very American mindset that has corrupted the church to say you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you get back to it being righteous. That's not what Paul is saying here. The question, or I should say the answer is found in the question, where's my hope lie? And what am I hoping in? Do I hope in a better life free from death and disease? Do I hope in a better government led by a better ruler in a better kingdom? Do I hope in a better power and a better strength and a better help? There's an interesting thought. There's an interesting thought that I want you to consider. How many people today believe in eternity? Not heaven per se, just how many people believe in this idea of eternity? I, heard, I read this quote um, on Friday, actually, and I really liked it. It said, the number of people who don't believe in eternity is actually quite few. How many funerals have you been to where the speaker gets up and says, well, so-and-so is dead, and let's just move on and go on about our lives? No, most people believe, and they hold some sort of desire for eternity, for a life after death of some means but they don't rest their eyes on that. That's not where they're looking at. That's, not, that's where their heart wants to go. That's where they have a longing to be, but that's not where their eyes are directing them. Instead, what do they do? They live for the moment. What can I have and what feels good to me right now? What's going to satisfy my needs today? What do I want today? And that's why you have tons of people who look back over their history and say, Why? I look back over my history at the choices I made as a teenager. Why did I wear my hair that way? Why did I wear those clothes? Holly can tell you the very odd fashion style that I had in high school. These are silly. How many people look back on their lives and they say, why did I take that job? It took me away from my family. Why did I take that job that caused me to miss my children growing up? 
why did I do that that caused me not to be able to be there for my wife? Maybe somebody else was able to come in and meet her needs and fractured our relationship. How many people today look back and say, I wished I'd never gotten involved with those friends? I wished I had never entered into that relationship with that group of people. Or I wish I had stepped away from it whenever I realized how bad it was. I wished I'd just run away from that. But instead, they provided me a sense of security. They provided me belonging that I wanted right then and there. And now, I'm addicted to drugs. Now, I'm, I'm stuck in prison. All because we focused on what provided comfort and enjoyment in the moment. Having hope means having eyes on eternity. Having hope means we are pilgrims living in this world and we understand this world is not our home. The passing joys of this life are not our joys. The peace that comes from just fitting in with this sinful world, kind of sitting on the periphery and, 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 and not doing or saying anything about it. There's a peace, but it's not our peace. Because we have a hope that we have a better home. We have a hope that we have a better happiness. We have a hope that we have a better peace. And having hopeful eyes on that creates endurance, patience, and steadfastness. That quote that I read earlier, it, it concluded with another quote from a man named C.S. Lewis. I'm sure everybody's probably familiar with him. That just really made me pause and think. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I want you to know that today. I want you to know that you were made for another world. A world that is characterized by God and His faith and His love, and His hope. And isn't that what the good news of Jesus Christ is really all about? That you were made for another world. But because of the sins of mankind, because of your own sins, we are stuck in this cursed world. But Jesus came and He died so that we could be set free. Set free from that curse and enter in to an eternity with God. I hope that we have eyes focused on eternity. I hope that we have hearts overflowing with faith, love, and hope. And I hope that those produce in us work and labor and steadfastness. And I hope that we can all be someone that can be remembered and that can be thanked before our great God in heaven. And I know, I know that the saints here, the church that meets here at Lake Street, can help you develop that in your lives. To help you develop faith and love and hope. And all of us need help with that. All of us need to work together to press one another on to good works. And what we're pressing one another on is to greater love, greater faith, and greater hope. Don't take your eyes off the prize. Whenever we hear about our brothers and sisters that are struggling with something, that are, that are having a hard time, we don't just take that, that information and say, oh, well, that stinks. 
I hope that that gets better for you. I, I might pray for you if I remember. Remind them. Join in with them. And help them to not take their eyes off of the, the great God of heaven that says, I know that you're dealing with these problems now, but if you're faithful to me, I'm bringing you into an eternity with me where these problems won't exist. Let's lift one another up. Let's continue to remember one another. And if we can do that and be, help you to begin to start your walk with Him, a walk that is led by these same characteristics, it is our desire to do so. If we can help you with that, won't you please come forward and let it be known as we stand and as we sing.